Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as we prepare for the upcoming school year, concerns mounting about whether it should be delayed and what protocol should be in place. Professor Tara Abraham has uh, written a great piece that uh, talks about that and compares what happened in 1937 during the polio epidemic. She'll join us on the program. Ontario's NDP leader is calling on the Ford government to get Hamilton's LRT project back on track after they released a version of the report that was used to justify its cancellation. And the new aluminum tariffs announced by President Trump have been said to be only hurting American manufacturers. But how are they going to affect the Canadian side? We'll get some points on that coming up in just a few minutes. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we prepare for the next school year, there are concerns that are mounting about whether or not it should be delayed and what sort of protocols should be used uh, to keep schools safe. Well, Professor Tara Abram, in a piece in the conversation, writes that we can look at how Canada addressed similar concerns from the 1937 school year during the polio epidemic. Tara Abram is the Associate Professor, Historian of Medicine and Science in the Department of History at the University of Guelph, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Tara, thank you so much for the time. Good morning. Oh, good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Those, uh, I guess we can learn from history. Those who don't pay attention to history are bound to repeat it. Uh, give me a, a read on, on exactly the comparator between 1937 and what could be happening today. Well, there are a lot of similarities. Um, there are also a lot of differences. Um, the similarity is that, you know, right now we're, we're kind of in the, um, you know, looking ahead to the school year. And there are a lot of debates between educators, public health officials, and parents about what um, what, you know, what would best serve our children as we uh, per- perhaps head back to school. The difference is that polio was something that parents um, were used to. It was something that, um, you know, there were epidemics for, you know, since about 1910. Um, you know, it was, it was something that people had to cope with every summer. So um, it was also an epidemic rather than a pandemic. So, um, we're talking, you know, with COVID-19, we're talking about a kind of a national and global health crisis, whereas polio um, was dealt with on a much more local level. I, I vaguely remember, of course, not, you know, I wasn't around in 1937, but uh, the reality is, is that it was something that was with us for quite some time until there was mm-hmm. eventually a vaccine that was, was developed for that. Yes. And I can still remember as a little kid lining up with everybody else in school to get our polio shots uh, in, you know, back in the day, but it was it was a life-saving thing at that situation. What were the concerns like about going back to school in 1937? You've heard, Tara, a number of the concerns here about, about infections, diseases, and about COVID, and about whether or not this is safe at this time, whether or not kids can actually uh, acquire the disease. There are some politicians who seem to think kids are immune. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of misinformation out there, which I think is probably muddying the water. I agree. I mean, I think with I, I think this uh, similarity between polio and COVID nineteen is that, regardless of the fact that there were you know polio was around and every summer there were epidemics of, of varying degrees, the the medical science was still at least in nineteen thirty seven very unclear, and they were you know uh, many years uh, almost twenty years away from a vaccine. So that's the same for COVID-19. I think in earlier in the spring, um, you know, if people believed that, as you said, that some politicians or some officials believed that, that children were immune, but we're getting a lot of new information and the, the kind of um, our medical understanding of COVID-19 is constantly shifting, which is, I think, adding to the anxiety. 
Well, that, that's one of the major differences, I guess. Back in 1937, people knew what they were dealing with. Uh, we're learning more about COVID every day, aren't we? Yes, yes, um, yes. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it is a testament to the fact that we are dealing with something very new. And despite kind of scientific medicine and, and widespread vaccine campaigns, we're still we're still learning something new. And so, you know, for, I think for some, some parents and for some officials, uh, we still don't know enough yet to, to kind of ensure a, a safe return to school. Well, especially when you look at, uh, let's focus, I guess, on, on, on our children, you know, and, and the return to school. Uh, because there's a whole, I know there's been a lot of, of, of study done about the whole virus, and we have to, I guess, keep in mind and put this in perspective. I mean, this is this is a virus that we just found out about, like, what, seven months ago, six months yeah. ago, uh, and <laughs> as opposed to something that's been around for a long time. And, and the impact that COVID-19 is having on children is still very, very unclear. Uh, as I say, at the one extreme, some people think kids don't get it. We know that's not the case. Uh, I saw a report over the weekend, Tara, that suggested that uh, they may not even be showing any symptoms for months, even though they've acquired the virus, and then it starts to to, to manifest itself in the body. So, we, you know, that's another line of thought on this right now. So with all of this that's out there, and some of it really not really hard in fact at this point, is it really safe to be putting kids back in school in September? Well, that's not a question I can answer as a historian. Um, I do think, though, you know, uh, to kind of add another perspective to the conversation that for some, uh, you know, I think the, the pressure that the families that I know who are, are advocating and pushing for some sort of safe return, whatever that might look like, are really, um, you know, suffering under the, the brunt of having to have school, children at home, working full time, um, single parents. Um, essential workers, people that are having to balance a lot of different factors in their domestic life. And I think that, you know, mental health is another part of health. And so, yes, we have to make sure our children are safe physically, but mental health is a big part of um, health as well, not not just of children who might be, you know, missing the routine, um, you know, uh, didn't adapt well to online learning, and parents are trying to kind of juggle many different parts of their lives and the stress that is, you know, felt uh, from doing so. And, and there's the rub, isn't it? I mean, there are economic factors, there are psychological factors and mental health issues that go on here. Uh, and on the other side of the ledger is, uh, are we exposing these children to the, uh, to the virus? Uh, and, and are we running the risk of, as so many other people have talked about, Dr. Tam and so many others, about a, a spike this coming fall because of the fact yeah. that kids are going to be going back to school? Uh, so it's, I don't know how you find a balance with that. Yeah, it, there are no easy answers. And I think what I, what I do know as well is that, you know, just as back in 1937, parents during the polio epidemic responded and, you know, in very different ways to lockdowns and to keeping their children inside. Some, you know, and some children thrived, some did not. Um, I think there are, you know, very different ways that people are, are responding to things today. In that particular circumstance, though, Tara, I mean, we're using phrases like, well, social distancing. Let's use that one right off the top mm-hmm. here, uh, which is uh, obviously a phrase that has become part of our, our vernacular with COVID-19 going on. Did they, did they, if, even if they didn't use that particular phrase, did they follow that practice back in, in 37 with the polio epidemic, or it was just, let's just throw them all in there and hope for the best? Well, I think that, um, I, I think that the, the numbers for, for 
first of all, I mean, polio, as you know, um, was a childhood disease. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think that you, you see that, you know, so it was really focused always on children, keeping them away from, you know, swimming pools and playgrounds and theaters. But once they opened schools up, I think, um, I think there were, you know, they had, you know, nurses on hand. They, they were, you know, um, I don't know if they would have the same sorts of uh, screenings that we do now when people enter public places or hospitals, but um, they would have, you know, the children were closely monitored, at least the way that their, you know, their, um, their activity at school was likely monitored as well. And anyone that showed any symptoms was, was immediately quarantined. So, um, so there, you know, there, I, I don't know, I don't know if the word social distancing, but it was, it was, um, there were measures. I think the measures that are being proposed today are likely much more systematic um, in terms of, you know, at least for the Toronto District School Board, I've read, um, you know, a lot of measures being put in place to kind of, um, you know, in terms of cohort sizes and alternating, you know, um, cohorts of children on different days and so on. So there are a lot of ways that school boards at least um, are, are trying to kind of follow um, public health advice in in keeping um, children safe, but I think it's it's ch- challenging in the sense that you know um, it's hard to keep certain ages of you know children of certain ages um, uh, apart, um, so to speak. I know that from from this summer, it's 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 difficult. Oh, absolutely. Therein lies the problem. Uh, you know, if you're talking about people in, in kids in, in, well, even, well, kindergarten up to about grade five or six and probably even maybe a little bit more than that, uh, how do you tell them not to go near each other? How do you tell them not to, to, to be social? Because that's what, that's inherent in That's what we want to do. Unless you build an infrastructure that, that creates that environment where, okay, there is social distancing, but that's going to cost an awful lot of money. And I don't think too many school boards actually have the wherewithal to be able to do that. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's perhaps some might say part of a larger problem of um, you know funding education and and, and you know and that's a, perhaps a different conversation. But that you know it, it is very challenging. And as we head into the fall, I mean, um, I think in the past uh, outdoor schools have been proposed or have been used in in past um, epidemics and pandemics. But as we head into the fall, that's going to be very difficult. And I know that. You know, uh, ventilation is another factor mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, these are uh, many of these are old buildings, of course, and you know, built in the 1950s or 60s in some cases, and they just they, they aren't up to 21st century standards mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to things like that. And 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 again, I know we're we're kind of getting into the weeds of the politics of this too, but they're yeah. they're they're very much interactive, though. I mean, they're intertwined. You can't really separate one from the other, uh, except that I think the common goal here is we want to make sure that the kids are going to be safe. Terry, you mentioned about mental health, and I know that's something that that we probably don't spend as much time as we should talking about. And I'm talking about the mental health of the children themselves. Uh, it's it's in the families I've talked to since March, uh, middle of March, when this whole thing started to happen, uh, say that their kids, in many cases, have been somewhat traumatized in varying levels by what's gone on. What would have happened in, in a worst case scenario where they go back and maybe sometime around Thanksgiving or later? this thing gets out of hand again and they have to shut things down. What's that going to do to a child's psyche? I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't... I hope it doesn't it, happen, but it, it might. I hope so as well. It might. I mean, there have been very few pandemics in the past without some sort of second wave, um, some sort of, you know, 
um, and it's already happening, you know, in BC, numbers are going up as, um, uh, you know, as we speak. So I think that, I mean, children have responded, you know, in varying ways. And some, I think some are, some adapted really well to online learning. Some, um, you know, from my own children's experience, um, uh, you know, and their and their friends, others, you know, found it impossible. Um, and I think that, um, you know, and some children, I think, are eager to go back to school. You know, the the um, in you know the in the Toronto Star, you know, in thirty seven um, polio epidemic, you know, children were lined up, you know, before the bell rang, so they were anxious to get back to school. But I and I think, but some children are are you know, regardless of whatever measures are put in place, um, they're, they're frightened to go back. And I think for some young children, the, the COVID-19 is very abstract to them. It's something that, you know, you can, um, you know, teach your children about what a pandemic is, what COVID-19 is, what, um, you know, what's happening. But I think you know, young children with big imaginations can, can think, you know, can go pretty far in, in, um, in their fears. And so I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I can't, I kind of shudder to think of what going back, you know, in September might look like, and then, you know, October, November, we get a second wave and everything has to pivot. The one saving grace, I think, is that, you know, the teachers and school boards and educators have had some chance to kind of, um, think about how they will conduct online learning if that has to happen. And so I think it might be a better, um, a better system than it was in the spring when we had to pivot immediately. We've had kind of a chance to kind of think about what that should look like and what might best serve students. Yeah, which is why so many boards are opting now for the uh, what they call the hybrid method, where there's a little bit of each. And, 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 and again, I guess that gives them that opportunity or that option, doesn't it, Tara, that, that if this does go south very quickly, then they can simply say, well, we're already doing some online, but we can just increase that. Yeah. And again, this is all under the guise that we hope it doesn't happen. We just don't know at this stage. That's right. There are a lot of things that we don't know, and the, the science of the medicine is changing all the time. And of course, there's the the possibility of a vaccine. But even the uh, the experts that we've talked to said that okay, it's great that the testing is going as rapidly as it is and as successfully as it seems to be so far. But uh, don't count on uh, on you know we being able to access that maybe until springtime uh, of next year. So I mean that which is again closer to the end of the school year. So we're going to have That's to figure right. something out, aren't we, in September? That's right. That's right. And you know it's hard to have a long perspective where we think of this as you know, you know, try not to think of the long-term effects on children, but think that this is, you know, perhaps hopefully a year in their life that, you know, that they can hopefully recover from. Well, especially, I agree with you that the families I've talked to and the kids that I see here in our neighborhood and and nieces and nephews, our, our kids, of course, are well beyond that past, and only one still in post-secondary education getting her master's, but so it's not going to have an impact on anyone. Having said that, of course, all the stuff she's doing now is online. But that the school is their social environment. That's where their friends are. And, yeah. and I can understand why they all want to get back there. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, people, you know, young, like high school students use, you know, TikTok and Instagram and all of the rest. But I think even before the pandemic, there, you know, studies have shown that even with social media and how easy it is to use Zoom and email, it's still, there's still a, a, a 
people still feel very lonely in that environment. And, you know, if you don't have face-to-face contact, it's, it's very challenging. Absolutely. Tara, great talking with you today. A great piece uh, that uh, people can check out in the conversation. And uh, here's hoping so that much. things work out the way they are. Thanks again for the time today. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Take care. Tara Abram, of course, from the University of Guelph. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. On Friday, we uh, carried a media conference that uh, Premier Doug Ford put on at Queen's Park. Uh, and it was essentially to talk about daycare and a couple of other things to do with COVID-19. But one of the questions uh, dealt with a, a report that we brought uh, to you here on 900CHML, though, about uh, a leaked report about Hamilton's LRT system. Now, you may remember back in December when uh, Transportation Minister Carolyn Marooney came into town to basically tell us that uh, the, gov- the government was backing away from their commitment to build LRT in Hamilton. Uh, they cited a cost of about $5.5 billion and said, well, that's just way too rich. You guys can't do that, and, and Hamilton taxpayers can't afford it, yada, yada, yada. Well, this leaked report essentially uh, gives no substance to that number and, and raises the question exactly where that number came from. So when the Premier was asked about it on Friday, well, this was his response. We've committed $1 billion to the LRT in Hamilton, and it was the NDP and the Liberals that just didn't give two hoots about the taxpayers in Hamilton that uh, want to ram this through, and I just asked the people of Hamilton, there's a billion dollars of operating cost. I'm not prepared to put the burden of the tax onto the back of the taxpayers in Hamilton. We have a billion dollars. We're going to give it to Hamilton to make sure that helps them. I, I truly believe Hamilton needs a transit system. But the easy way out is take the NDP liberal approach and just say, tax the pants off these people. We'll give a billion dollars, but the city has to pitch in too. We had experts go in there and it is $5.5 billion, unequivocal. But I I guess it's up to the mayor to ask the people of Hamilton, do you want your taxes to go up? Not a little bit either, drastically go up to pay for the transit system. There you go, and uh, on and on it goes, and uh, there were some accusations there that city council wasn't being responsible about this, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the, it has been a, a, a quick turnaround in the, in the approach to what was going on uh, because you have to weigh that comment from the premier against what he said just after the last municipal election where he said, well, Fred Eisenberger is pro-LRT, and they put him back in his office, so we're committed to LRT. Well, they aren't anymore. Uh, and, and I guess if you want to try to read into what the Premier said on Friday, what he didn't say may actually be a, a much more clear indicator of exactly where the government is on this. I want to bring John Best into the conversation, the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, who's been following this story about LRT since day one. Uh, John, so, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Well, it's great to be with you, Bill. You, you've had a chance to, to look over some of the stuff that was released. I know Andrea Horvath, the opposition leader, uh, released some of this information. An awful lot of it is redacted. Could you make any sense out of what you could see? Not really, Bill. Uh, certainly, to, to be fair, uh, there was no uh, $5.5 billion figure. There were there was two or three numbers listed, and uh, as the spectator pointed out, I don't know whether we were expected to add them up, and if, if we did, it would probably look to me like it was going to be three, almost $4 billion dollars. But I think I think what Ford did Friday, quite frankly, is he, he, he stepped out of the whole issue of the cost of building the uh, LRT and dealt strictly with the operating and maintenance agreement, which, as you know, that's always been hanging there for, uh, you know, there was always going to be that final, uh, as they like to call it, an off-ramp where council could decide whether they wanted to sign the operating and maintenance agreement. And, and, and what the report that was released on Friday 
did say uh, was that the operating and maintenance agreement was going to be over a billion dollars. So that was the one number that did jive with what we had heard back in December. And Ford, uh, on Friday, what he basically said was, look, uh, setting aside cost of building it, there's a billion dollars that the Hamilton taxpayers would have to pay over 30 years. It'd be about $33 million a year. And uh, on that basis, uh, he sounded pretty definite that uh, he wasn't on for that. Yeah, as, as he rolled on with the answer, I mean, when, when Randy Rath from CHCH was the one who asked the question, of course, uh, so there, there was, that's where the Hamilton perspective came in on this. Uh, and he mentioned LRT in the first line of his answer, but after that, all he talked about was Hamilton's transit system. Hamilton needs a transit system. He didn't mention LRT again, which indicates to me that they probably already made up their mind. It, well, frankly, it sounded like that to me. I mean, I didn't hear a bit of warmth in that whole exchange for LRT. Uh, if, if he's, if, in fact, he says, I'm not prepared uh, to put the burden on the Hamilton taxpayer. That's a no. That's not a yes. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how you build the LRT without the operating and maintenance uh, component. And... Uh, if it is a billion dollars over 30 years, then, you know, it sounded to me like he had indeed uh, decided that that was too much for, for, uh, to allow the project to go forward. It was certainly a more definitive comment than we heard from Kathleen Wynne. You'll recall when she was being cornered on the issue, she would sometimes revert to talking about transit. Uh, but this one really sounded like he had a major problem with that operating and maintenance component of the project. Well, possibly because of the way that this has morphed into into what Ford envisioned as LRT, because when uh, Premier Wynne at that time made the announcement at McMaster University so many years ago, it seems now, she talked about build uh, and operate LRT at, at the cost of Metrolinx, or i.e. the province. Uh, Ford never seemed to buy into that part of it. So he's, he's basically saying, look, if you guys want this thing, you want to build this thing, you're going to have to pay for the cost of, on a daily basis, an ongoing basis. And that wasn't supposed to be part of the original deal. Well, uh, although the mayor uh, issued a news release later on Friday, and he said it always was, that the operating and maintenance always was part of the deal, and everybody should have understood that, which, fair enough, uh, except that nobody had a sense of what the actual cost was going to be, and if indeed it was going to be something in excess of $30 million a year, I mean, you, you have to look at right now uh, the taxpayer spends about 40 odd million subsidizing hsr so you put another 30 on that that's a pretty substantial increase in in the subsidy to uh, to hsr but he also uh, he took a swipe at both the liberals and the ndp and he accused them of trying to ram this and that was his words ram yeah. this project through so i i don't Think, I don't think anybody would be shocked to know that he doesn't feel bound by anything that Kathleen Wynne or um, anyone else uh, prior to him would have to say on the subject. Yeah, well, that's that's pretty obvious, and I think he made that clear from the time he started running for the for the job uh, so many years ago now, too, that uh, that uh, whatever the the previous government did was simply going to get tossed out the window, and he's done that. So it doesn't surprise us that it's happened uh, with this LRT project as well. But I, I, I guess the question a lot of us have, though, John, when we start looking at this and then heard the Premier's comments on Friday, is why don't they just come out and say it? I mean, what are they waiting for? And, you know, they're saying, well, we're still evaluating what the uh, the, the Citizens Committee came up with. And, uh, you know, we've talked with a number of the people that were on that committee, including Tony Valeri, who chaired that committee. 
uh, and they said they've presented a number of different options, and we know what they are now. Uh, it shouldn't be taking months and months and months for these guys to make this determination, should it? No, it, it's been a long time, and uh, if you know, certainly his remarks Friday would would suggest that you know there's yes, there is evaluation going on, and presumably that's being done by by bureaucrats, but. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it sounded to me like a political decision had been made, and uh, we'll have to see what happens. I think that's the only reason. I think they, they, they sort of unleashed this process of setting up the committee and uh, putting people on the committee and then letting it do its work. So I suppose there's a sense that, uh, you know, certainly out of respect for people like Valeri, who uh, put many, many hours in on, on the project, that they... They need to allow the process to unfold as it was supposed to unfold. But on the political side, it sounded, uh, I think anybody listening to that would have a hard time thinking that he was going to come back in two months and announce the LRT project. Yeah, I don't think, well, I guess there were some people that probably expected that. And, and by the way, I mean, no disrespect to the people on that committee, including Tony Valeri and some of the other folks that, all of the other folks that were on there. Because I think, uh, you know, once asked to be on that committee, they, they, they put their heart and soul into doing what they thought was going to be a decent report. But I, I always looked at that the, the, that committee and the striking of that committee by the province as really just a, a cover-your-butt sort of thing to say, well, look, at, all right, we'll, we'll look for some public input on this, but we've already made up our mind. Do you really and truly think that the Premier is actually going to throw Carolyn Maroney under the bus, metaphorically, uh, which I guess is a pretty good metaphor, considering we're talking about transit here, uh, after that decision in December? They're not going to backtrack on that. Well, uh, probably not, uh, although, uh, you know, I, I think, frankly, uh, the striking of that committee uh, in some way was a, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to the sort of immediate outcry that had taken place uh, when when the announcement of cancellation was made. I mean, that whole thing was mishandled from the get-go. I mean, um, you know, it's, you, you don't bring a minister into a community to issue an announcement like that. You you do it on a Friday afternoon uh, via news release. Um, to bring her down here and expose her to to that kind of a situation, I think was was just a blunder. And in fact, I, I believe heads rolled uh, subsequent to that uh, in her office uh, because of that. So um, you know, it was uh, unfortunate. Uh, I think they they panicked a little bit and they decided, well, we better do something. And uh, so the committee was struck. And uh, now we're fast forwarding. It's August. And, um, you know, and and plus, of course, uh, you know, the the other reality that we've gone through since uh, the announcement in December is this whole COVID thing has just, you know, turned public finance on its ear. Uh, Got a federal government that's spending somewhere in excess of, 300 billion dollars and uh, the provinces have all gone into the hole as well so it's just a different time and um you know i just think the you know probably the public mood is uh, has changed uh, in hamilton uh, even well, and I'm wondering about, let's bring the federal government into this for just a couple of seconds, because uh, one of the local ministers here, Catherine McKenna, well, she's actually from Ottawa, but she's from Dundas initially, of course, uh, m- made another comment that uh, the federal government may be interested in kicking in some money for this project in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I don't know if that's the capital cost or operating costs or whatever the thing might be. We never really got any specifics on that, because there's been no ask yet from the other province about this. Is that going to change this at all? 
I don't think so, Bill. Um, I, if anything, I think Ford was um, somewhat irritated by the fact that they were trying to use Cap- Captain McKenna as kind of a lever to, to pressure him uh, on this. And if uh, I, I actually talked to her office on the weekend or on Friday just to see what, what is the pool of money that, that would be available. Uh, there's been a long-standing uh, infrastructure program uh, f- that was used in Kitchener and Ottawa, but it has a very definite formula involving a municipal contribution of approximately 27%. Uh, so Hamilton Council's been pretty clear on that issue. Uh, the only other money that's available is um, a special COVID fund uh, that was mentioned that would involve roughly $2 billion for the province of Ontario. But once again, you need the province of Ontario to participate. And I can't imagine that, you know, for Hamilton, I think we would need most of the $2 billion that's available for the whole province. And, and I just can't see Doug Ford saying, yeah, let's throw it all at Hamilton. I think what's more likely is it's going to be spread, uh, you know, uh, across the province on a on a population basis, as these things normally are. Uh, I know that London is doing a major electric bus project right yeah. now. I'm sure they're looking for money. Guelph has just uh, signed up. They're they're converting their fleet, um, and and Oakville just had an announcement last week as well. So there's there's a lot of hands out for transit money right now, and I I. Politically, why would Doug Ford uh, direct all the money to Hamilton when, when we elect three NDP um, MPPs? I mean, there's not, you know, I mean, we got to be realistic here, Bill. Uh, you know, this isn't exactly uh, the most uh, uh, Ford-friendly um, city in in Ontario. Well, and we heard that from, I guess, one of the first visits. I guess it was really an unofficial visit that the Premier made to the Hamilton area because it, it was it was a meeting with local business folks. And, and although the media were not allowed uh, inside that meeting, uh, we've heard anecdotally from two or three people that were in there that uh, that the Premier basically said, Hamilton's not going to get a whole lot of anything if you keep electing NDP members. So this is very much political. Yeah, it is. And, and to think it wouldn't there wouldn't be some politics somewhere in there uh is is probably unrealistic i mean if you look at the at the lrt uh you know again you don't want to be too crass but here's the reality it serves three ndp ridings uh you know yeah. so um you know you, at some point i think you do have to put on a more realistic cap as far as uh politics and uh you know there's there's not a lot of upside for him especially if as we as we saw in a you know in the the only real poll that was ever done was the forum poll i know i know the mayor talks about the election but he wasn't willing to call it a referendum on lrt until after he won um you know there appears to be uh, a plurality in the community that are not in favor of it and certainly i would say now there's a there's a plurality on council that don't want it so I, that always existed, though, didn't it, John? I mean, uh, I, I a lot of the people so, that, they, that you know, yeah, they, a lot they, of the ones, John, that supported this, uh, you know, because the, the, those that are pro LRT are saying, well, councils voted in, in favor of this. They, a lot of them said, look, it's who's going to say no to a billion dollars? Well, now we find out that first of all, the billion dollars is not necessarily to die, tied into LRT. You're going to get the money anyway. I, I yeah. would think there's a few people, more than a few people, in council right now, John, that are secretly thanking the province for taking them off the hook. 
Yeah, and uh, taking them off the hook, I think, is, is um, they, there's been too much taking them off the hook, in, in my view. I think council could end this thing next week, uh, or this week, by simply passing a resolution saying to Ford, look, we, we want to look at, uh, at bus rapid transit, we want to look at an alternative to LRT, and, um, you know, it could happen very quickly. And, uh, in fact, I've written an editorial to that effect. You know, are we going to drag this thing out until, until say, next year when the operating and maintenance agreement is presented to council and they turn it down because it's too expensive? It, it seems, uh, you know, there's an opportunity here to uh, um, seize the moment and, and get on with things. Well, and I don't see, and we've had full debate on this for years now, uh, about LRT and, and the possibilities here, but I really don't see a, a white knight riding up on this and saying we're going to save the day. Uh, even, the, as you say, the federal government's idea that, hey, well, while me might be interested in, uh, you know, kind of, sort of, but we don't really t- attach a dollar figure to it, the ultimate decision is going to come from Queen's Park, and it sounds to me as if they've already made the decision, they just haven't made it official yet. Yeah, I mean, the federal programs, and, and uh, you know, when you read uh, Kathleen McKenna's uh, various news releases and, and press comments, she makes it clear that, that the lead has to come from the province uh, on, on triggering any federal money. So why don't we just, as you say, fisher cut bait here and move on, get on with our lives? I mean, you know, if this is going to go to, as the Premier indicated on Friday, a great public transit system for Hamilton, which, as we all know, means bus rapid transit initially anyway, uh, why can't we just get started on that? What are we waiting for? Well, uh, what are what are they waiting for, Council? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Bill. I, I mean, I think I think that's really the question uh, right now. Is uh, you know how how much longer the, is this thing going to get dragged out? Um, you know, the quicker they 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 move, the quicker the money gets triggered, and the quicker construction starts. And you know, if you're talking about bus rapid transit. Um, you know that that's going to be roughly 20 kilometers. I think that's what the task force said. Be roughly 20 kilometers of bus rapid transit. That's a lot of concrete. That's a lot of construction. Um, you know, there, there, there's there's still a, a, a significant construction value uh, in um, uh, whether it's BRT or LRT. There's there's still going to be it's still going to be a massive construction project compared to almost anything else we're doing. I mean the the you know the wastewater plant uh, you know is is uh, the most expensive project that we've ever undertaken in the city and I I forget what the amount is but it's not a billion dollars so uh, you know there's uh, there, there's a lot of uh, short term and and ultimately longer term benefit from whatever kind of transit system we get. Well, like I say, somebody's got to start moving the ball here, and whether it's going to be the province or city council, somebody really has to take the initiative because uh, doing nothing, which is what we seem to be doing right now and spinning our wheels, is is really counterproductive to everything we're trying to do here. Uh, yeah, John, as always, good. thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today, and uh, we'll watch for that editorial in the Bay Observer. Very good, Bill. Thank you. Take care. John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Feedback and pushback, of course, about uh, the Trump administration's uh, move late last week to reimpose tariffs on aluminum products from Canada. Uh, as a matter of fact, adding uh, fuel to the fire, I guess, uh, when Doug Ford had his press conference on Friday at Queen's Park, he said he'd also heard rumors that they may start imposing steel tariffs once again. Now, there's been no confirmation of that. 
But uh, that would make a bad situation even worse if it were to happen. But anyway, the uh, Canadian government did respond, as we might have expected. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland uh, had this to say about the, uh, the tariff move. The U.S. tariffs on Canadian aluminum exports to the U.S. will, in the first instance, hurt Americans themselves. And I am confident, as we were last time around, that ultimately common sense will prevail. I just hope that happens sooner rather than later. Yeah, don't we all? Let's talk about the implications of both our side here on the Canadian side of the situation, and of course the Americans as well, and uh, whether or not this is uh, a short-term thing or something that we're just going to have to get used to. Ian Lee is, of course, with the Smart School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I am doing just fine, thanks. Uh, here we go again. It's the sense of deja vu with aluminum tariffs. Uh, were you surprised, by the way, that the, the Trump administration went this way? Uh, no, um, I think we're getting into the uh, f- full-fledged uh, presidential campaign. Uh, Trump is very significantly behind in every poll. Poll after poll after poll shows that he is heading towards a defeat. And so I think what he's doing, especially given that he announced it on the campaign trail in Ohio, which is a swing state that, that uh, put him into the uh, White House the last time. And so I think what he's doing as he's trying to change the channel from the, the his uh, failures on, on managing the economy, and he's trying to change it back to economic issues that were so uh, successful and uh, when he was uh, elected in 2016. So um, I, I think that this is driven purely by politics and not by uh, not by you know the economics uh, of the situation. Well, let's talk about the economics of the situation. You and I had some some intense discussions about the tariffs back when he initiated these uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs a few years ago now. Yes. And, and as you've advocated, and many economists have advocated, uh, tariffs is not good economics. It's not good politics even. It might you know make some people feel as if the, the president's got their back on this. But who's going to pay that tariff, Ian? Uh, it'll be paid by American uh, producers that import it. Uh, the auto industry uh, consumes about one-third of all the aluminum uh, uh, used in the United States. Canada supplies about 50% of America's needs because this what didn't come out really that well in the reporting in the last few days, but the United States is a net importer. In other words, their producers cannot produce enough. So there's no, you know, the Canadian uh, producers are not taking market share away from the american producers they've got to import and uh, so you know this again that just proves or demonstrates that this is being driven by politics not uh, by economics but to answer your question the uh, people that are importing the aluminum such as um, auto industry will pay um, the the tariff and then pass it on in the uh, higher prices to the uh, consumer for the product so, which begs the question, why would he go through this? I mean, when they did the tariffs before, and, and let's face it, there are still tariffs, Chinese tariffs, of course, uh, you know, to, to do with agricultural products. Uh, American farmers are hurting. Some of them have actually had to shut down shop, and it's not just because of COVID. It was because of these tariffs. And yeah. there was a great deal of pressure from the steel and aluminum industry in the States the last time he imposed these to say, back off, stop doing this. Uh, so, so what's the upside here? Is, is it that, is it, are they assuming then that the, the American public's not going to pay attention to this? I, th- I think he um, it, he is uh, the fact that he announced it in Ohio, uh, which, as I said, is swing states. One of the five states or four states actually that put him in the White House because it was so tight the last election, and 
So I think he's trying to duplicate what he did in 2016. Uh, he's appealing to his base. He's appealing to those industrial states in the American Midwest. And so he's, he believes that tariffs are a signal to those voters that, hey, I'm standing up for you. I've got your back. Look, I'm taking on those Mexicans. I'm taking on those Canadians. I'm taking on those Chinese. That's what he's saying on the campaign trail. And so, as I said, it has nothing to do with economics. It's purely uh, symbolic on his part. He's using that as a gesture to say to those voters in those uh, Rust Belt states, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, I've got your back and I'm on your side, um, even though it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that's what he's arguing and that's what he's counting on, that it's going to help him um, uh, be reelected. I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical because I think the mismanagement of the economy, his mismanagement of the uh, response to the COVID crisis uh, has been so uh, clear and recognized across the political spectrum that I, I don't think that's going to, um, uh, that these tariffs are going to get people to change their, um, their, their focus from the, the crisis that's unfolding in the United States, the, uh, the COVID crisis. But the difference, I guess, between now and four years ago, though, Ian, is he's got a track record now. I mean, he made all kinds of promises running for election the last time in 2016. You know, I'm going to bring the auto industry back. I'm going to bring jobs back. You know, I'm going to not much of that has happened. As a matter of fact, it could be argued that none of it has happened, really. They've actually lost jobs and lost some manufacturing as a result of this. Uh, So, you know, why is it going to be different this time? Uh, You're right. Uh, But the... um uh, I mean, I don't, if you, you know, if we'd been having this conversation in January, I would have said, and I did say, that he was um, sailing to victory. And I think he was about to be, re- he would have been reelected. The economy was extremely strong, notwithstanding that they had lost jobs in those areas you just described. But the economy overall was incre- incredibly strong. Unemployment was down to its lowest level in I, uh, something like 80 years or something. And so, you know, everybody was happy. And and what happened was the COVID crisis in March, and of course the incredible death toll that it's produced, I think it's over 150,000 Americans now have died uh, from it, has captured everybody's attention. And so the talk of the economy has gone, uh, well, first off, the economy isn't doing well because of the COVID crisis, and so he can't even argue, hey, look, you know, I'm the guy that made the economy strong because right now the economy is in bad shape, worst recession since the Depression, because of the COVID crisis. And so he's really wearing the COVID crisis or the, the, the terrible response, the inadequate response. And so he's just, I think he's really, this is an act of desperation on the part of Trump because he doesn't really know what else he can do. You know, I mean, the COVID crisis is not going away. It's getting worse. And, um, and of course, that's sabotaging the economy. So all he can do is uh, look for things like uh, tariffs to remind people, look, I've been standing up for you for the last four years, and I'll continue to do it. As I said, I don't think it's going to, it's going to save him, but that's what I think he's doing. I think it is an act of desperation um, to try desperately to change the channel away from discussion and focus completely on the COVID crisis. Ian, I, I hesitate to try to ask you to get inside the head of Donald Trump. People have been trying to do that for years with little to no success. But I guess the question here is, given that scenario, 
Why aluminum? Why would he pick on that? Because this seems to be the one that's going to have the least impact on Canada and the most impact on the states. The stat I saw on the weekend is, uh, you know, Americans, especially the car industry, but other industries too, they need aluminum. But apparently in the United States, they only produce about a third of what they need. So they're going to come back here no matter what. Um, I, I was asking the very same question to myself. So I went digging. And there's only two companies that produce the, the aluminum in the States. And one of them, the plant is in Mitch O'Connell's writing, the Speaker of the, uh, the Senate Majority Leader in the, yeah. in the Senate, Republican. And he, apparently he's in a very, very tight race. And the Republicans desperately want to keep control of the Senate, uh, even if they lose the, the White House. And so this and the, the workers and the comp- these two companies are asking for the tariffs, even though no, just about no one else is. These two companies are, and the 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 one plant, as I said, is in a uh, in a state that is Mitch O'Connell state, and they desperately need to keep that Republican. And the other plant is in a in a state that is also in a competitive race. And so I think that this is again being driven by politics and not at all by the economics. But from that standpoint, though, Ian, can, can those two plants ramp up production to try to make up this difference? That seems virtually no. impossible from a physical no. standpoint. You can only produce so much. That's right. It's, it's not even, you're right, you're right. It's not, a, it's not just a capacity problem. It's the, now we're talking the economics of aluminum, and it's a, it's a very unusual industry. It uses gargantuan amounts of electricity. And so over the last 20, 30, 40 years, uh, aluminum plants, have, um, smelting plants, have migrated to countries where they can access cheap energy costs, cheap energy supplies. And um, Quebec is nine, eight of the nine uh, found of, uh, smelters in Canada in Quebec. Quebec has incredibly cheap uh, electricity because of James Bay. I mean, literally six cents a kilowatt hour right now, I believe, five, six cents a kilowatt hour. Ontario is about 15 cents a kilowatt hour, just to give you a comparison. And so they've been going to China and Russia, of course, are also huge producers, either through subsidizing their electricity or because they have ample energy sources. And so the, the, they, there's no logic in increasing the uh, supply of aluminum in the States because it doesn't make economic sense. In other words, you can make it cheaper in other countries, and um, Canada being one of them. So you're not going to import from the Chinese or the Russians because of the problematic relationship with them. So the Americans actually have a very good deal, and the fact that they have a country right next door that's a very close ally called Canada, and uh, eight of those nine smelters are in Quebec, where they can make the uh, aluminum much more competitively at a competitive price because they have such cheap uh, electricity prices. And, and But he sees that as because these two smelters in the States are complaining bitterly, and uh, when their problem is that they're in a country where electricity costs are significantly higher and there's nothing they can do about that there you know you can put all the tariffs you want in the world it doesn't change the underlying economics of this industry let's talk about canada's response uh, <clears throat> excuse me deputy prime minister christy freeland announced on friday that they're going to uh, meet this on a dollar for dollar basis with the tariffs of on their own the last time they did that, Ian, with the steel and aluminum tariffs, Canada's response was done strategically at, at various products, and we're told that it had quite an impact on some specific areas yes. in the United States. Uh, I'm assuming they're going to use the same strategy here. So this, in a big way, could backfire against the Trump administration. That's right, because what they're probably going to do, what's been um, the rumor in Ottawa, is that they're going to put tariffs uh, on um, products 
coming specifically from the, the constituencies of the ridings of Republicans. And so the idea is, well, we'll put the tariffs on products being made in states that are, have a Republican senator so that that senator will then go to the president and say, look, this is really hurting me, so can you back off? And uh, so strategic targeting of our response uh, could yet uh, uh, carry the day and, uh, pull it, and pull it off. So, so that's that's the, the the intent at this stage right now is is to create that sort of pressure, local pressure, regional pressure on yes. on the Mitch McConnells or whomever it might be. I mean, let's face it. I mean, myself, I know a lot of people stop drinking sour mash whiskey, you know, because they one of the was Jack Daniels, and yeah. uh, and it proved to be very effective uh, because it was a Republican pressure in the Senate. We're told that uh, was a major factor in them backing off on the steel and aluminum tariffs. So this this is really for show at this stage, and it's not really going to have much of a positive economic impact, I would think, in any region. Uh, I agree. And, and I think it's, uh, I mean, politics does enter into it on the Canadian side, too. I mean, it's not just on the American side. This is a minority parliament. Uh, that means that there's going to be an election sooner rather than later. Typically, a minority parliament lasts two years. One year's already gone by. And uh, Mr. Trudeau has uh, got his own problems, nothing to do with aluminum. He's got his own problems, you know, with the Wee scandal and so forth. So he wants to reinforce his position and be so he can, when he does go into the next election, he can be campaigning. We stood up to Donald Trump, you know, we, we fought right back. So I don't think he really has any choice. I, I, the Canadian government doesn't have a choice. They've got to retaliate because if they don't, then they're going to be uh, criticized by the unions, by Unifor. They'll be criticized by the provinces, by the Premier of Quebec, which, of course, is the base of the Liberal Party. And so I don't think, quite bluntly, I don't think the Canadian government really has a choice in this. They've got to retaliate just even if only to send a message to the provinces, the workers, the media, that we're not going to take this lying down. We're going to stand up to the bully Donald Trump. So there's a lot of posturing going on. And I think that because we're so close to the election, meaning, what, three, four months till November, uh, that, um, that I think that uh, the government is probably just saying, let's, let's hunker down, yes, do the retaliation, but hunker down on the expectation that Biden will be the next leader and uh, uh, the leader of the, the Democratic Party will be elected as president. And then that, that they have, the Liberal Party has a lot of friends and contacts and relationships with senior key people in the uh, Democratic Party. Remember, of course, Trudeau had a very good relationship with uh, President Obama. And Biden, of course, was President Obama's vice president. So uh, I think that the, in the short run, there's an awful lot of show going on right now. Uh, a show by the Americans, of course, by Trump trying to sh- uh, turn the, his uh, electoral defeat around, or his imminent uh, defeat around. And the Canadians, because, well, they have to, <laughs> and uh, they're going to, the, the government of Canada, the Liberals, are going to be going into an election either this fall, and I'm not predicting that, but it could be this fall, or next year, next uh, spring, summer. Ian, always great to get your perspective on this. I, I get a feeling this is only the uh, the beginning. There's going to be a lot more coming up, as you mentioned, the uh, weeks and months ahead because of the election. We'll stay in touch. Thanks again for this today. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thanks. Take care. Ian Lee yeah. from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.